2 Peter chapter 3. We're almost to the end of this book. This has been our journey through 1st and 2nd Peter, and I trust it's been a help to you as we have um, looked at this theme of persevering in hope and how God, as we heard in the song a moment ago, gives us peace. He is the only one who gives us peace, and He gives us hope, and He is coming again, and that's what this book is about. Uh, It is that third chapter that focuses our hope on His return. But the question resounds, what do we do in the meantime? As the author Peter already has alluded to, it's been a long time, and even back in Peter's day, they were saying, it's been a long time. Where is he at? Uh, He should have been here by now. And so uh, doubt was starting to creep in. Faith was starting to falter. And Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, jumps in with some words that we need to help shore up our faith and keep us watching and keep us working while he tarries. And when we think of him tarrying, It's not that he doesn't know when he's coming or doesn't know what he's doing and that he's just waiting around. To us, he's tarrying. To him, he is right on time and he knows exactly when when the right time is for him to return. Let's jump into verse 11 and it says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. So that's a rhetorical question, but it's one that we should answer individually nonetheless. We should be looking at that saying, okay, I need to make sure that I as a Christian am living with that mentality that Jesus is coming again for me. And he has a job that he's left me here to do. In the meantime, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of the Lord. In other words, watchfulness and hasting, meaning there's an excitement and anticipation moving forward toward that day. Wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That was last week's text. We'll keep reading. Verse 15, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. We'll come back to that word and see what that exactly is talking about. As they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, Seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. We're going to stop there for now. Lord, I pray you'd help us as we look at these passages, this passage of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would be helped and encouraged while you are tarrying your coming, that we would know exactly what we should do and have the motivation to do it to be who you've called us to be in these days. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at the end of the book, he's kind of circling back to some things, at least alluding to some things he's already covered elsewhere in the book. He's talking about the possibility of us being led away with the error of the wicked. Well, he talked all about that in chapter 2. The false teachers and their false teaching and the deception that would creep in and how that would spill over and and that would find its way potentially into the church. And a lot of good people would be hurt by it. And so we need to have some diligence and there needs to be some uh, foresight 
and not just this assumption that everything is going to be fine. We have to be watchful even in regards to the deception and so forth. But he also talks about falling from your own steadfastness, and that is something I believe he's alluding back all the way to chapter 1, where he, he really gives us this foundation of our steadfastness, being fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, in the first chapter, he really spoke a lot of that which makes us steadfast. And, uh, and he encouraged us to be diligent in that walk because it's not going to be all uh, an a easy street, shall we say, or a walk in the park. Chapter 2, he goes right into the false teachers and the deception that they would try uh, to work on even God's people. He also alludes in this passage the importance of Scriptures and the importance of being grounded in the Scriptures. And again, this is ground he's already covered in this, in this book. You get to the end of chapter 1, and he is talking about the Scriptures and how we have a more sure word of prophecy and we do well that we would take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And so he, he, he tells us how, how, how important it is for us to be grounded in the Word and students of the Word. And with that preparation, he goes into chapter 2, false prophets are coming. The best way you and I can be uh, ready for false teachers and false prophets is to be in the Word of God, students of the Word of God. He's given us some instructions that will help us to know what to do while he tarries. And I know it does seem like he's, he's been tarrying for a while. Uh, but he knows what he's doing, and this passage tells us how to interpret this tarrying time. Should we be getting discouraged or should we be taking heart? Peter would be of the mind we should be taking heart. Uh, just a quickly review, last week we saw that the second coming motivates godly living because all of this will be dissolved. God will make a new heaven and a new earth. God's people will be glorified. This is to, to motivate us. This is to motivate us, folks. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There will be many false prophets, and the love of many will wax cold, the Bible says, but we are to be motivated by the fact that He is coming. The second coming uh, motivates godly living, but it also uh, heightens expectancy. We should be people of faith, anticipation, readiness, and faithfulness because we are looking for His coming and living for His cause. But we saw also last week that the second coming inspires diligence. Diligence to be found of Him in peace. Diligence to be found of Him in spotlessness and blamelessness. And now we continue in this theme looking at what do we do while He tarries? Well, first off, now is the time, while He tarries, now is the time for determined proclamation. Verse 15 and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. <clears throat> All right. And account. What is he talking about there? Account that. Uh, I'm not an accountant, but I'm glad for accountants that keep us all square. Glad for that. Uh, we need that. But you know, you have to reckon certain things to be so. You have to put things in their proper column. When I'm talking to Brother Pete, about the books, he's always wanting to make sure the right thing goes in the right place, the right column. There's a spot for everything when it comes to accounting. And you know, this is kind of the same idea here. We are to account correctly in regards to the long-suffering of our Lord. When he's talking about the long-suffering of our Lord, he is talking about his patience in regards to his return. He just told us 
a little bit ago, a couple of verses ago, everything's going to be dissolved, everything's going to be on fire, there's going to be judgment and all of this and so forth and so on. And so now he says, but this hasn't happened yet. Why? Because of the long suffering of the Lord. So what are we to make of this? We are to account that. We are to regard or reckon or deem or think. And in short, we are to conclude from this long-suffering patience of God that this delay, if it is a delay from our perspective, is for salvation. That's what it's about. Why has he not come, somebody says. Peter replies, I want you to regard it this way. I want you to conclude this about his long-suffering. And I like how he puts it. He doesn't say, let me, let, let me uh, have you conclude this about his delay. I want you to conclude this about his tardiness. No, 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 no. He calls it long-suffering. I want you to conclude this about his long-suffering. This is about salvation. The long-suffering of the Lord is about salvation. We should not assume he's not coming, as some assumed earlier in this passage that said, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. That was verse 3 of chapter 3. And there's been plenty of people all the way along and plenty of people today who just say, no, this, this is not ever going to happen. You guys are waiting and waiting for nothing. So we shouldn't have that conclusion. Uh, we should conclude that his, his long-suffering has to do with the salvation of souls. Peter believed and taught that God's quote-unquote delay, but God's long-suffering is on account of his desire to reach this world. He already wrote earlier, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is who he is. He sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world through him might be saved. He is not anxious to destroy this world, or he would have done so already. He is merciful and he is long-suffering. I'm reading in my Bible, starting back in Genesis. Anybody else start over in Genesis? Just curious. A few of you, okay? Okay. I know different people read various ways through the Bible and, and, and this chronological and various things, but as long as you're reading it, that's all I, all, all I care about. <laughs> I've been reading through Genesis, and I got to Noah. And I thought, wow, God did that. God started over. It's amazing to think. I mean, as I really pictured that day when the, when the doors were shut and the waters came down and up, and, and just, can you imagine the chaos, the worldwide chaos, the panic? Absolute catastrophe worldwide. And yet, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And from that, God set his bow in the clouds and said, I will never destroy mankind again through the worldwide, uh, with a worldwide flood. But there will be worldwide destruction, just not a worldwide flood. Just as God was merciful then to give them a preacher of righteousness to preach and preach and preach while that, while that boat was being built, he has left us here as modern-day Noahs. You've got to see yourself that way. Now is the time for determined proclamation. God is long-suffering because he wants people to be saved. He's left you and I here to help get the gospel out. So we're to be busy, folks. We are to be busy. I mean, I don't know how Noah kept it up all those years while the ark was being built. Preaching and then building and preaching and building but he did it because God left him there. And, you know, I think I hear it today. I hear people say, well, nobody wants to hear anymore. 
Nobody cares. This world is, we're in a postmodern age and a post-God age and a post-faith age. And, you know, this world just wants judgment, so a judgment they're going to get. I, I'm giving up on preaching and nobody wants to hear our gospel message anyway. None of that matters at all. What matters is, because you might be right. Maybe you're right. I don't think so, but maybe you're right. Maybe no one's going to get saved ever again. I don't believe that. But I'll tell you this, if God left you here to preach the gospel to them, you need to preach with faith, believing that God still will save some. I'm glad Noah did what he was left to do. And even though he did not save the world through his preaching, he did, he did do this much. He did reach his family. We know that. Every one of us needs to reach our families. He did warn the world as a watchman. There was no blood on his hands. He did exactly what God asked of him to do, and he gave the world an opportunity. An opportunity to repent and to, to, to believe by faith the message. You can make excuses all you want. Noah didn't make excuses. He just built the ark and preached the word until judgment came and you and i have been left behind as well and uh we're building families and building churches and building businesses and building all kinds of things that god's told us to build and while you're building you'd better be preaching you better be getting the gospel out and we have so many more ways to do it than noah did you can sit in your basement with a little uh, phone or a, or a computer camera, and you can get the gospel out. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go outside and get cold. I mean, I, I wonder, uh, it was probably not that convenient for Noah to get out and preach, but he did it. He preached the gospel because he accounted that. He had a boat that they would need and he needed to convince them of that need and the coming judgment and trust that some would by faith get in the boat. What an incredible picture of salvation. And Peter actually references that. We talked about Noah earlier in the Peter series. Uh, he, he references uh, Noah. Noah is a great type, a great uh, analogy of salvation. We have to account that or regard, reckon, deem, conclude our takeaway is that God's long-suffering is to give us time to preach the Word for people to be saved. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't broken His promise. He's giving you and me an opportunity. So the question is, what are you doing with the opportunity? It's amazing to me how many Christians do not see or sense any responsibility or obligation to the proclamation of the gospel. I just don't understand it. And you say, well, preacher, of course you're not going to understand it because you're a preacher and you got the gift of gab and you love talking to folks and, you know, that's just what you do. That's always funny to me too because I'm only here because God's called me here. And I'm only doing what I'm doing because he's enabled me to do it. Uh, this is not who I feel like I am in, my, in myself, in my own strength. But I'll tell you this, I've been able to preach in enough places and see God use enough weak people that I now believe anybody and everybody can give the gospel out effectively. I've seen the Lord use the most unlikely of gospel proclaimers I mean, I remember one kid, one teenage kid pleading with these other teenage kids after a rally, this little dweeby little kid. You know, he was, his, you know, kids all grow different ways, and sometimes, you know, puberty can be really hard on a kid. <laughs> Lord bless you all. We all had to go through it. If any of you guys are going through it, hey, we're praying for you. Um, uh, it'll, it'll be better. But this poor kid, he was, he was, he was one um, Twinkie of a kid. 
but he, he, he pled with these older, cool teenagers after a rally through tears of urgency, spitting slobber. Like, you're not supposed to do that. That doesn't help people, you know. He didn't know what he was doing. He's just pleading with them. You guys got to get saved. You know what? One of the guys starts crying. And then his buddy looks at him. He's like, well, man, better go in and get, take care of it, is how he put it. <laughs> so the tough guy stayed outside, but the kid who started crying goes in with the, the little junior hire. Kid gives the gospel, and he gets saved. You know, I, I don't care who's cool, who's got it, who's got the winsomeness, or who has the mouth or the gift of gab or whatever. You've got to go back to 1 Corinthians, and you find that God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the, the wise and the foolish things of the world, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And, and when we think of ourselves here uh, waiting for Jesus' coming, you, you've got to see yourself as someone who is here on time given from God for one purpose. We've got to be about this matter of salvation because the long-suffering of God is salvation. That's what he's saying. Account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It's all about what he's trying to do to deliver and to give people opportunity to be saved. Read a quote here. We should never regard it as an evidence. I'm sorry, we should rather regard it as an evidence of his mercy and of his desire that we should be saved. But also... Wicked men should not infer that because God does not cut them down immediately that they will therefore never be punished or that God is not faithful to his threatenings. They should rather regard it as proof that he is willing <clears throat> to save them. The very wicked people who scoff and say, where is the promise of his coming? Strike me down. I'm going to go ahead and do this and this and this. Ha! Ha! That person needs to recognize the very fact that you have the breath and strength and energy to do this or this or this is not proof that there is no God. It's proof that there is a God who loves you and is waiting for you and is willing to bear along with you until that point that you would humble yourself and come to him in faith and repentance. The takeaway for the saved is that God has given us time to get the gospel out. And the takeaway for the wicked should be that God is merciful to them, giving them time to repent. They're not getting away with anything. They're simply giving, have been given time to call upon the Lord while he is near, to seek him while he may be found. Christian, what have you done with the time God has given you? What have you done with the long-suffering of God? I want you to think about your life and take an inventory. How much of your life has been about being a, a, a voice for the gospel, a, pro, a proclaimer of the gospel? What is your life's legacy? How many have you impacted with the gospel? And I know that it's not a numbers game. It's not a, it's not a race. Oh, I've, I've seen five people saved. I've seen 25 people saved. It's not a competition. I remember hearing uh, Brother Hal Hightower, evangelist, and now he's a pastor here in Michigan, and uh, he gave his testimony. And Brother Hightower has had an opportunity to see thousands and thousands of military personnel saved through the ministry that he started at Fort Leonard Wood. I believe I got that right. And so Brother Hightower, he's, he, he's, if, if it's a competition, we've all lost. Brother Hightower won, okay? <laughs> right? But it's not a competition. But here's what Brother Hightower talks about. He talks about the pastor who led him to Christ. The pastor who had this little itty-bitty church in the middle of nowhere, and nobody ever showed up. And the pastor was very discouraged. And nobody ever got saved in that church. I, mean, I shouldn't say nobody ever, but very, very few people ever got saved in that church. But that pastor was able to witness to Hal Hightower. Hal Hightower got saved. He discipled him, sent him to Bible college, into the ministry, and off we go. 
You know, that's how God works. So it's not how many people have you led to the Lord, but are you, are you getting the gospel out? Because <laughs> once you do it, God multiplies the loaves and fishes, friend. He can take it and put it in places you never thought it was possible. The point is, we've got to be about this gospel proclamation. He is being long-suffering. What, what, who have you impacted with the gospel? Who have you impacted in your own family? Or even your church? Ideally, as we look around, we would all have had some fruit for our witnessing labors even in the pews at some point. We ought to pray for that. We ought to ask God for that. Now is the time. Now is the time for determined proclamation. And I want to say this for the lost. Again, don't buy the lie that God's asleep. Recognize that it's God's mercy and long-suffering and, and, and His goodness that has, in a sense, quote-unquote, delayed His coming. Repent and believe on Him today. Secondly, now is the time for doctrinal precision. What do we do while He tarries? Well, proclaim the gospel, but then also, while He tarries, now is the time for doctrinal precision. It says, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Again, you don't need to feel so bad. If you don't understand it all, Peter said right there. Some of it's hard to understand, okay? Which they which are unlearned and unstable rest, we'll come back to that word, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. So whatever that word rest means, it's got to be bad because it's, it's associated with destruction. All right, God gave us the Apostle Paul as another apostolic voice on this matter of preparedness and watchfulness during this long-suffering of God. Paul's words were given to him, we understand, according to this passage, through wisdom, divine, divine imparted wisdom, and uh, we also know this passage helps us out with another topic that comes up. Uh, were, were the Apostle Paul's writings inspired? Well, this verse helps us answer that question. He, he refers to this as scriptures. He says, as they do also the other scriptures, meaning Paul's writings were scriptures, and they had a trouble with that, and they have trouble with other scriptures. You see what he's doing there. And he also says, according to the wisdom given unto him, he's talking about uh, Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. Paul's writings were, were inspired. Paul's writings agreed also with Peter's point all through. And we don't have time to go into all the writings of Paul that, uh, that, that line up with Peter here. But Romans 2.4 is a good one. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? There it is again. Why is God long-suffering to a sinner? Because he's being good to them. And he is using this goodness and, and this extra time to lead them lovingly to repentance. I've used that several times when witnessing to someone when they're having a hard time with, uh, I don't think God's being fair about this and this and this. I'll say, hey, look, <laughs> fairness is coming. It's God's long suffering that's giving us all time to be ready before that justice comes. Paul also wrote in 2 Timothy 1.5, he wrote about the second coming of the Lord, judgment, and, and the charge to Christians to remain steadfast. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the parallel here? Eventually, it's going to happen. Judgment will fall. Vengeance will be poured out on them that know not God who didn't do what? Who didn't? Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the implication there? We were preaching, and there are some who still said no, and at some point it will be their final, their final no. But let's still be preaching, because some will say yes. 
God will speak to some. Verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. Boy, that's good stuff right there. That's right in line with what Peter's saying. You who are left, you Christians, have a job to do. Oh, that God would help you to fulfill the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power while He tarries. The Scriptures are unified. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's not late. He is long-suffering. And He's given us a job to do while He is being long-suffering with the wicked. Paul's words, as he mentions here, contain things that are hard to be understood. I think we should talk about this for a moment. Back to 2 Peter there in verse 16, in which some things are hard to be understood. Folks, can I just say something here? Don't expect the Bible to be an easy read. You know, there's all these different versions of the Bible, gazillions of them. It's downright confusing. It doesn't have to be, but I think, I think that the devil is using the multiplied however many versions to really cause some to, to like have overload. What's the Bible? Where is it? It's overwhelmed by these options. There are terrible options and there are better options. But some of these options are terrible. They just take the Bible and put it down in like kindergarten English. And they, they make conclusions that they shouldn't make and where some things are purposefully left ambiguous because God wants you to study. He wants you to know Him through His Word uh, certain decisions are made by translators that just, they don't, they don't give you the opportunity to do any work. They just make the decision for you. This is what we think it is. That's unfortunate. And you've got a lot of Christians who are kind of like junk food Christians. Just give me the easy stuff. I don't want to cook. I don't want to chop carrots. I don't want to take any time. I don't want anything to have to bake. I'm not going deep. I just want, give me the Cheetos off the fast food aisle. Cheetos and Mountain Dew, Cheetos and Mountain Dew, Cheetos and Mountain Dew, you know? Can you live on that? Yeah, for a little while, sure. I don't know, I wouldn't say forever, <laughs> but uh, you've got, you got Christians that are kind of Cheetos and Mountain Dew Christians. They want the Bible to just be an easy read. Everything has to pop, or if, I don't, if it doesn't pop right away, I'm moving on. It's just not worth it. We, we've spent too much time on social media, media scrolling and too much time with 140 characters and anything that takes any work at all in the Word of God, we're just, ah, scroll, scroll. And that's a problem because when you look at what Peter's been telling us in 2 Peter specifically, we have an incredible, uh, an incredible uh, preserved Word of God that we're to dive into to really... Uh, be able to be grounded so that we can withstand deception and also keep our faith fed when God is long-suffering and he, 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 things take longer than we think they should take. And what's going to feed your faith? It's the Word of God. And some of these things are hard to understand, but it's when you are committed to diving in and learning and not just being satisfied with some cursory glance at the Scripture. This is when you really begin to develop some maturity as a Christian. We use here the King James Version of the Bible. I would say it's not an easy read, and that's what most people have said they don't like about it. Um, I'm not, I, it doesn't bother me that the King James is not an easy read because in my philosophy, I don't think that the Bible has to be an easy read. I like the fact that King James is reverent, Time-honored, it's accurate. They have a very good, the, the King James translators had a very good, healthy uh, uh, translation philosophy. And I know people argue over this all day long. But the bottom line is this, I don't want us to be lazy. We don't need to be people who, if we can't get it off the top shelf right away, we're just moving on. You know, even Peter said some of, some of Paul's words were hard to understand. 
Thank you, Peter. I was thinking the same thing. But let's now take a deeper dive and let's ask for God to open our hearts and shed light, illuminate His Word. Isn't it neat when you study the Word of God and you find something out? Things click. Now, if you haven't had that experience, well, you need to. That's what it is to be a student of the Word where you're reading the Word of God and and God speaks to you and you begin to see what this means, and it comes together and it takes shape. Oh, it's, 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 it's great. God would not have stressed the need for diligent students of the word unless diligence was needed. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you realize there are some workmen who are ashamed because they have not developed the skills. There are some who do not know how to rightly divide the word of truth, and we meet those mentioned in Second Peter chapter 3. They did not study to show themselves approved unto God. They were not workmen that needed to be ashamed, uh, not to be ashamed. These folks did not rightly divide the word of truth. They were rather unlearned and unstable. That's what it says. They were unlearned and unstable. What is this talking about? Well, those who have been careless in their Bible study, undisciplined in their Bible study, not diligent in their Bible study, what's the, what's the, uh, the result there? Unlearned, incompetent, or ignorant. And then you have those who are unstable. What is that talking about? Uh, Those who have no settled principles and views of their own. You know, the Bible tells us, the things that you have learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. In that process of teaching to faithful men, What inevitably happens is you find things that you can't explain. And you're like, wait a minute, though. I'm supposed to commit this to this guy. I'm I'm teaching this guy. I'm discipling this guy. And now we came to this verse, and I don't know what it means. Know what that does for you? You take a deep dive. And you have to get an answer because you've got to tell Bob on Tuesday night, what does this thing mean? And when you begin to commit to faithful men, God commits things more deeply in your own soul. And that's when it really becomes conviction. The things that you ferret out for yourself with the Holy Spirit's guidance and illumination, those are the things that really are bedrock in your soul. The things that you just said, okay, Pastor Barber said that, you know, it's my sermon notes from, you know, 2017. And so that's what he said. So that's what we believe. Okay, that's as good as far as it goes, but if you haven't really confirmed it and, and, and worked through it in your own heart, it's probably not as deep. We find some people here in this passage considered unstable, unsettled, no settled principles, and no firm views, no firm convictions, unlearned and unstable. And what do they end up doing? They end up resting, W R E S T the scriptures. Let's look at that again. It says, um, either for beloved, nope, I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. As also in all his epistles, speaking of them, these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are uh, unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. This word rest, you know, it only appears this one time in Scripture, as far as I can tell. This is the only time this word pops up. <clears throat> and it means to torture or twist. Uh, one scholar I read used the analogy of being placed on the rack. Anybody familiar with that? That's how I got so tall. Uh, we didn't do spankings in my house. We just did the rack. You know, I, just, I was a bad kid. What can I say? <laughs> no, no, we didn't do the rack. Uh, but that was a thing back in the day. You would stretch, stretch that person out, you know. That is such a picturesque word for what we're talking about here. 
People who are unlearned and unstable rest the Scriptures. They stretch it out and put the Scripture on a rack and you stretch this thing out. Let's torture it, twist it, because I want it to mean what I need it to mean. That's the goal of this process. It's, I think it'll fit here. Yeah, see, it fits. Don't anybody move. Boing, he just lost it. Uh, my imagination goes crazy with this kind of stuff. But you know, many people who don't have firm convictions and are not anchored to do what God has called them to do will use the scriptures for their own purposes, especially those that we saw in chapter 2 or those who've been influenced by those who've been of chapter 2. Resting the scripture, distorting or perverting the scripture to mean whatever they need it to mean. And you see this all over today. There are churches built upon this premise. It's all about you, whatever you want, and we'll make God's Word tailored to you, your needs. We will not step on your toes. I opened up YouTube to look up something, and there was this paid-sponsored video that popped up first. Somebody paid money so that their, their uh, YouTube video would pop up first. And it, I, I guess my settings are to start auto-playing. And so this video just began to play. And I thought, how interesting. I, I was looking up something pertaining to this message. I don't even remember what it was now. Uh, but this first video comes up, and the title was Christ ain't coming back. He's not coming back. 121 verses to prove to you why. I thought, I don't have time for this, but I got to hear at least five minutes. <laughs> so I, it was a 45-minute thing. I listened to the first five minutes, and this guy dives in, and I checked who, who he was later. He has got 56 subscribers and a couple of videos made in his basement or whatever, and I don't think he knows what he's talking about at all, but nonetheless, he had this view that Jesus isn't coming back, he couldn't come back for all of these reasons, and he had a lot of theological bents I won't go into, and then he begins to take 121 verses and rest them. <laughs> Stick this one on the rack and twist. <clears throat> see? See? Ah, see? And he gets through, and I didn't get through the whole thing, obviously, but just from the, the first five minutes, he had already rested the Scriptures, stretched it, tortured it, perverted it to tell us Jesus isn't coming back. This is why we've got to be grounded in His Word. Believe his word. Be a student of his word. Don't twist and pervert the scriptures to mean what you want it to mean, but rather be dedicated to, Lord, you speak, I listen, and by your grace, I will obey. Now is the time for doctrinal precision. Now is the time for determined proclamation. He's long-suffering so that we have time and the wicked has time to hear the gospel. But finally, now is the time for dedicated perseverance. Now is the time for dedicated perseverance. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. This does not mean that you will fall away from your salvation. I believe that we're in God's hand. The Bible says that. We're in His hand. No man can pluck us out. But steadfastness, well, that's a great term to deal with our faith, to deal with our, 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 um, our position in, in Christ as, a, as one who is walking by faith and victory. All that we read in chapter 1, he had so much to say about putting diligence in nurturing the virtues of the Christian life. All of what we said in chapter 1 was helping us to be diligent, diligent uh, about being steadfast. So now he says, seeing ye know these things before, beware 
lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So, beloved, beware. Deception is real. False teaching is prevalent. It's subtle and it's powerful. If false teaching was easy to spot, it wouldn't be so prevalent and so popular. One of the reasons that false teaching is, is so effective is because it plays so well to our own fleshly desires. We've got to be beware. Beloved, beware. Deception is real. Christians are not immune to the effects of false teaching in our lives and in our families. Don't be collateral damage of the wicked all those false prophets of chapter 2. We know where they're going. Don't you be collateral damage. Don't be in the vicinity of that. He says, beloved, beware, and then beloved, remain steadfast, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. And here, I believe he is really referring back to everything he gave us in chapter 1 diligently pursuing the virtues of the Christian life and that knowledge of Christ, that deep experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done, the provision I have in Christ and the access I have to daily victory through Him. I don't want to fall from this area of overcoming, the overcoming life of Christ. I want to remain steadfast looking to Him, yielded to Him. What's a steadfast individual? They're grounded. They're growing. They're not perfect. But they're grounded. They're growing. And they're rightly connected to one another. They're in His Word. They're not just off on their own. They're supported, networked, nourished by His Word and with the fellowship of God's God's people. You know, I think for some of us, we have some experiences in our our life that God stepped in and He did a great work. He saved us. And maybe we've got some some cool stories from our past that just keep keep us going the right direction. When we're down, we look back at what God did. It helps us go forward. But I want to speak to the parents. Your kids don't have that yet, and your story only goes as far as you. And you can't, you can't keep reaching back when you're telling your kids, yeah, back in 1972, this happened. Or back in 1993, there was this happened in my life. And kids like, 1990, what? How old are you? Wow. You know, and well, what's God done since then? What's, the, what's happened since then? You know, for, for some of us, that might be, that might be, it might not be, but it might be enough for you to keep going and hang in there but it might not make it to the next generation. It might not make it to the next generation after that. I believe believe part of remaining steadfast in the Lord is, is knowing who I am now in Christ and what God is doing now in my life. Recognizing right now it's the long suffering of God that has even given us time at all. There's work to be done and by God's grace I am doing it. And me and my family are involved in this together and we are seeing God at work in our day. And by His grace, we're remaining steadfast in our faith. We need to see that. As we conclude here, now is the time for determined proclamation. So while He tarries, would you be committed to preach the gospel? Would you be committed to getting His word out We've got so many things that make it easy for us today. It's, it's, it's shameful that we don't get the gospel out. We've got tracts and pamphlets. We've got the mail system. If you don't want to knock on someone's door that you're burdened about, Aunt Mabel or whoever, you can just send them a letter, send them a gospel tract in the mail. You've got email. You've got, you've got YouTube. Make a YouTube video with the gospel. Send it out. Go out and shake somebody's hand. Share the love of Christ. But folks, we've got to be determined to preach the gospel while he's given us 
this time in the long-suffering of God. Now is the time for doctrinal precision. While he tarries, dig into God's Word. Let's have no more fast-food Christianity. Let's be willing to sit down with our Bible and a pen and paper. Take some time if you don't know a word and look it up. Take some time if you have no idea what this certain verse is talking about. Let's, let's pray about this and let's get into it and have some precision in our life that can help us when trouble comes. Now is the time for dedicated perseverance. While he tarries, remain steadfast. And you have a church to help you with this. You don't have to do this on your own. You've got people. You've got a life group. You've got uh, brothers and sisters here. We, we, oh, we're starting up Overcomers. Little plug, shameless plug for Overcomers on the 19th. Hey, that's what we're going to be talking about uh, in our Overcomers meeting is, is how to remain steadfast. How to walk by faith through difficult circumstances in your life. While he tarries, may God help us to remain steadfast. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the next verse and conclude uh, this powerful book. God's got a lot for us to do until he comes. Lord, help us to live for your cause as we're looking for your coming. Lord, while you tarry, I pray that you'd help us to be found faithful and filled with faith. Students of the word, steadfast in our faith. Lord, work now in our hearts, we pray, as we take a moment to just bow our hearts before you. As the piano plays quietly, would you take a moment to talk to God about your need this morning? If there's one here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, that's the most important decision to be made is to come to him and put your faith in Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that personally. But let's not leave anything to tomorrow that God wants us to do today.